press the button. Okay, I've pressed the button too. Okay, here we go. Hello, and oh, oh, fuck's sake. (laughs) Hello, and welcome back to a podcast about murder. I'm Freya, and I'm here with Jem, and we are so pleased to welcome you to our second season of episodes. How do you feel about being back, Jem? I'm excited. I'm looking forward to it. Um, finally, <laughs> we will be diving into some more fascinating cases this season, of course. And if you can't tell, I've got a new microphone. Yay! Yay! So anyway, let's get right into it. Um, our episode today is not for the faint of heart, let's put it that way. It's a very dramatic and very tragic case. Um, the victim was a very young little boy, but... What I guess made this case so well known and so talked about in the UK was that the perpetrators of this crime were also children. This is what I think sparks so much intrigue and disbelief, um, whatever, because it's something that is very difficult to comprehend. Um, But there's a desire to understand the how and the why in this case. Um, But of course, it's important not to forget about the victim in this case who was so cruelly taken at such a young age. And when talking about his killers, it's important to bear that in mind. I won't go into like I th- I won't go into unnecessary detail, basically, because I just don't think it brings anything to it. So I will say that you don't have to worry about like gratuitous um, explanations okay. of, of what happened. Um, but just a warning that, you know, it does involve children, so it is quite hardcore. So this is the case of the murder of James Bulger, a crime that shocked and disturbed people in the UK. But also, I think beyond that, um, I think it did make it out and get heard about a bit around the world just because it was so shocking. So let's talk a little bit about the figures in this case. James Bulger, born to Denise Fergus and Ralph Bulger in Kirkby, Liverpool. Ralph worked in security and Denise was a committed and watchful mother who took good care of James. Her instinct to protect her son was intensified due to the loss of her first child, Kirsty, who died. Um, Tragically, she was stillborn. Sadly, Denise could not know that she would have to experience the loss of a child for a second time. And she even says that um, when this stillbirth happened to her, she thought to herself, well, God, this is the worst (laughs) Sorry, I'm not I'm not laughing. But she thought, well, this is the worst thing that could happen to me. Right. So everything's up from here, I guess. It just makes it like (laughs) so much worse. (laughs) So much worse. I mean, it was already bad. Mm. Now I have this. So horrendous. Yeah. Um, Robert Thompson was the fifth of seven children born to a dysfunctional family. Robert's father was terribly was terribly abusive. At a young age, Robert witnessed his father beat and molest the entire family and inflict the same treatment on Robert until finally deserting the family in 1988. Rather than look after her children, Mother Anne was a hopeless alcoholic and often left her chaotic home unattended to visit a local bar. The children, left completely without any form of parenting, tortured each other, wreaked havoc in the home. Fucking Anne hell. and two of her sons had tried to kill themselves unsuccessfully. Despite numerous reports of violence and neglect, the children were not taken into care. So this boy hasn't come from the best. So John Venables had a rather different childhood um, than his friend Robert. His 
parents lived apart, but they were more well-off than the Thompsons, and they attempted to bring up their children together. John and his two siblings spent part of the week with each parent. John's brother and sister both had learning difficulties, and John was a hyperactive child, often causing trouble in the classroom. John did not take well to his parents' separation, and his mother began to suffer from psychiatric problems and neglect the children. In 1987, police were called after she abandoned the young children, the oldest of which was seven, for three hours. Her serious mm. depression was noted at the time, as was her tendency to be a harsh parent, although there was no abuse known or recorded. Later, much would be made of Robert Thompson and John Venable's early behaviour, such as allegations of severe animal abuse and violent or disruptive behaviour at school, although like, it's not known exactly how many of these things are completely true also given the backgrounds some disruptive behavior at school is it's, it's to be expected in some ways being disruptive at school after even after something that we now consider quite a normal thing like your parents splitting up um mm. but children react to it by being disruptive is not uncommon that's not necessarily an indicator that someone's going to become really violent or anything so, so it's often noted the differences between Robert's upbringing and John's upbringing and what they would then go on to commit this crime together. On the 12th of February 1993, John Venables and Robert Thompson skipped school together and this was a common occurrence for them, uh, something they would do together. The two 10-year-olds went to the New Strand Shopping Centre where they spent time stealing multiple small items from the shopping centre, um, which was also probably part of their usual routine yeah and again, i would think not necessarily they seem quite confident doing this yeah but again not necessarily a sign of like psychotic behavior no not necessarily i mean it's not super unusual for children to experiment with a little bit of thieving thieving i, I know i have <laughs> <laughs> So some of these items that they stole included batteries, sweets, a troll doll, and some blue paint, some of which would be kept and others would be tossed down an escalator for no apparent reason. So they're just kind of like making trouble, you know, like they are, not, they are troublesome kids, but they're not like at this point it's like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> John and Robert were captured on CCTV in the shopping centre and they appeared to be watching various children. They would later reveal that they were planning to abduct a child and to push the child into oncoming traffic on the road outside. Um, so that is, now we're getting into something that is not normal. <laughs> no, I mean, definitely not. And also weird that they would sort of plan that. Mm. in such detail there's a premeditation here that is like unmistakable yeah. um and it's definitely now getting beyond the point of like oh you're a typical sort of like maybe you've had a rough, rough upbringing so you're a little bit misbehaving this yeah. is like going a bit further than that quite disturbing yeah in fact another child very nearly became the victim in this case um, a shopper in a TJ Hughes store momentarily lost sight of her two-year-old son. But luckily, she was able to catch John and Robert with him outside the shop, attempting to lure him away. When the boys saw her, they vanished. Later, John and Robert saw two-year-old James Bolger in a butcher shop with his mother, Denise. In the shop, Denise was temporarily distracted when placing her order to the butcher, and her attention was not on her son. John and Robert took the brief opportunity 
to approach James and take him by the hand, leading him away from his mother and out of the shop, captured on CCTV at 3.42 p.m. A famous and heartbreaking image from this footage shows the three boys leaving the shopping centre with John holding the hand of the tiny James and Robert walking out in front. It's an image of pure innocence that only becomes haunting with context. Um, Mm. It reminds you of the trusting nature of James holding John's hand and willingly leaving with them. Bystanders in the mall believed, as you would at this point, that these boys were brothers. And so, of course, they never thought to stop the boys leaving. Funny that he wouldn't make a scene. But then I guess at that age, maybe you are just very trusting, which makes it so depressing. Yes, I guess he just, you know... A little boy, some older boys want to play with you. Yeah, you're almost, like, happy to be noticed by the older kids when you're that age. Yeah. Which is just, oh. Denise, of course, noticed very quickly that her son was missing and began panicking. She had looked away from James to place her order, and when she looked back to where he had been at her side, he had disappeared. She went to the shopping centre's security immediately and alerted them, describing her son and his clothing, and the lost boy was announced on the centre's loudspeakers, but it was too late. By 4.15, there was still no sign of James. Denise reported him missing to local police. Good mum, though. Very reactive. That's what's so tragic. She was so protective of him because she'd already lost a child, and this was, like, literally a moment of looking away. And something like this happens. It's difficult to imagine how you would feel. John and Robert took James on a walk across Liverpool for about four kilometres. During which... Yeah, that's quite long. During which they stopped at a pet shop, went to the canal where they joked about pushing their victim into the water. Instead, they dropped him on his face, making James cry and catching the attention of a witness who would later give evidence, placing the boys at the canal at this stage of the abduction. I hate this case so much. Um, You're about to hate it more, actually. Because yeah, I have no doubt. During the walk, 38 people witnessed the three boys, but most did nothing, despite the fact that James is thought to have had visible injuries on his face from being dropped at this point. And there are even reports that state the older boys were seen kicking and hitting James, yet still nobody oh, intervened. God. One woman supposedly simply closed her curtains after witnessing John hit James in the street. Despite the abuse, James was still willingly following the older boys, but he was visibly distressed and cried out for his mother. There were a few points at which people were suspicious and concerned enough to approach the boys. John and Robert spoke to them and claimed that James was their little brother, or that he was a lost boy that they had found that they were taking to the local police station. The adults were satisfied by these explanations. Perhaps no one believed that two 10-year-old children could have such dark motivations as to abduct a baby. I can see that. Like, that wouldn't be my first assumption. But still, if two kids were like, oh, he's a lost boy and we're taking him to the police, I'm pretty sure any normal first reaction would be like, okay, I'll come with you. So one woman told John and Robert that she would take James herself to the police station, but she wasn't able to find someone to watch her own child while she did so. And I don't really understand why she didn't just take her own child along. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. It's it's hard to comprehend all these close calls where James could have been saved but wasn't because of such small, stupid things. Mm. <laughs> um, this woman apparently asked a nearby woman to look after her child but was told she couldn't because her dog didn't like kids. Um, oh, great. I mean... So uh, I wonder how that woman feels now. 
I guess I feel bad because I don't want to like, you know, but it's still like really for that tiny thing. Like you, like even yeah. in this, even in this situation, you don't know what's going to happen. You see like a lost child that needs to be taken to a police station in your mind. That's what yeah. you think is happening. And you're going to go, oh, sorry, my dog doesn't like children, so I can't help you yeah. out. Anyway, obviously no one was that worried about James or you'd think there'd be a bit more urgency there. Mm. Later on, one of the women who had stopped the boys to ask about James saw the story about the missing boy on the news. She phoned the police, regretful that she had let the boys go. Many of these people would end up witnesses, maybe trying to make up for their inaction during the abduction. In some ways, it's hard to get into the heads of the almost 40 grown adults involved in the situation. I mean, that's who, a lot of people who just did absolutely nothing, yeah. um, actively ignored the situation or simply didn't do their due diligence as an adult stepping in mm. to find out what was going on. Maybe this is a mark of the time period, but like two 10 year olds with a two year old is still. But it's also not that long ago. Do you know, like, it's no, not like it's, it's not the that 30s. long ago. That's why I'm kind of going it's quite common for rural areas, people to sort of let children yeah. wander around on their own. But in an area like this, I don't see that as being normal, even in 93. So like, mm. you know, if you see two 10 year olds with a toddler, it's still two completely unaccompanied children with a screaming toddler. That's crazy yeah. to me. I would never think that was normal. I guess I'd like to think that I wouldn't ignore that. But um, most people would like to think that they wouldn't. But I have to admit that it's possible that I would because this case showcases a primary example of the bystander effect, mm. um, which, so if if no one's ever heard of this before, if no one's ever heard of this before, if anyone, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, no one's ever heard of this psychological uh, thing before. I just came up with it. Yeah. Um, so if anyone has never heard of this before, the bystander effect, also known as bystander apathy, is the social psychological phenomenon that individuals are less likely to offer help to a victim when other people are present. And another part of the phenomenon is that the greater the number of bystanders, the less likely it is that someone will help. Mm. I guess it's like almost a sort of peer pressure thing mm. in a way where it's like, well, no one else is doing it. So why would I? This is even true of emergency situations. There are many videos of experiments showing this effect in action, a lot of research on it and the reasons behind it, whether that's self-preservation, um, cognitive issues in the decision-making process when it's put under time pressure. So like um, it's possible that because you have only a limited time to make a decision, your brain literally just stops like can't well, it gets caught in a loop of shall I do it shall I not shall I do yeah. it shall I not and then you just end up doing nothing because you're stuck in decision making but it is true that I don't know how confident I would be even though I've like I've been certified in first aid mm -hmm. and I know how to give CPR but I don't think I would feel confident enough going up to someone on the street and just being like no no, no it's fine I got this under control <laughs> let me just yeah so you know the, I mean? the other element of it might just be like a lack of feeling like you can deal with the situation. Yeah. So the bystander effect is very, very strong. I can understand why people would stop and ask them what was going on and then not do anything because it sort of feels like you've done your duty yeah, as a yeah. concerned but, citizen. But like of the 40 people, only two or three are known to have actually approached them and asked. Uh. And like that 
even just doing that bare minimum, it's kind of like, why was that so much for Mm. so many people to not do? Um, And like, I know I'd be so angry if that was my child and nobody had done Mm. anything to stop this. Maybe if we all sort of recognized that we had this, then we'd Mm. be able to do more to to prevent it. Because if you know you have this and it's not a shameful thing to like, be a bystander because we live in a social society and we have these psychological phenomenons that are just evolutionary Mm. things that we can't control. But if we know of them, then maybe we can sort of fight against them. Anyway, eventually the boys arrived at a deserted area of railway between 4.40, excuse me, between 5.45 and 6.30 p.m. The torture and murder of James Bolger occurred. I can see absolutely no reason why I need to go into a lot of detail with this. Um, I don't want to. Um, If you'd like to know more, you can look it up. Uh, It is mostly readily available information, but it's nothing that I feel, it's nothing that I feel needs to be gone into gratuitous detail about. It's just a bit much, so I'm not going to. But James sustained 42 injuries from which a cause of death could not be established. Blue paint stolen from the shopping center was splashed on him. Um, So this is obviously just important from an evidence point of view. Um, Mm. His body was placed on the train tracks before John and Robert left the scene in a bid to confuse the scene. They hoped a train would come Mm. and the impact would make the death appear accidental. The next day, police following the witness reports of James and the older boys searched the canal and other nearby areas, finding no trace of James. Initially, James's parents were suspects, but when the police got access to the CCTV footage from the shopping centre, they saw the proof that it was two young boys who had been with James. They released an image to the media to generate tips, and the story exploded. I guess you have to... It's like that thing of, if someone is murdered, the spouse is always the first suspect. But the situation doesn't scream to me, oh, it's definitely one of the parents. It does seem like, unlikely that a mother would somehow like, like how does she get him from the butch- get him out of the butchers and then run straight to security and go yeah. like, and then somehow have enough time to, I don't know. But I get it because, you know, stranger abduction is so rare and it's much mm. more likely to be your family. But they, they quickly figured out that this wasn't the case as soon as they yeah. got the their hands on the CCTV. Hauntingly, when James's father saw the footage, he was relieved and comforted. He recalled saying to Denise, he's with two young kids, he's going to be all right. Oh. On February 14th, two days after the disappearance and Valentine's Day, um, the search ended when four children discovered James's body on the railway track. I mean, seriously, four children discovered that. A lifetime <sighs> of therapy couldn't do enough to help you after witnessing that scene as a kid I can't even imagine the police now suspected that two children as yet unidentified had killed James are we recording on the day on the anniversary of of the murder to oh my god we are I don't even know what to say about that that's really creepy that wasn't even that wasn't Mm. even on purpose that's weird okay that's strange let's just try and (laughs) Let's just try and deal with that on our own time. (laughs) The police checked school absences and even received calls from parents reporting their own children as potential suspects. Oh, my God. Which is pretty unbelievable. That's a pretty (laughs) twisted thing as a parent. To think of your own kid. It's like, oh, yeah, my kid's really fucked up. You should check him out. (laughs) (laughs) What? My God. 
But an anonymous woman, after seeing enhanced versions of the CCTV images, was the one who identified John Venables and Robert Thompson and contacted police, saying she knew of their absence from school that day. The pair had no prior record of violence, which initially made the police less interested in them as suspects. So, like I said before, like they did have the sort of violent... Maybe they had they had disruptive tendencies and they had violent or Robert had violent home life. But mm. these weren't like recorded, you know, police incidents or anything like yeah. that. And nobody had ever like alerted as they have a reputation. Do we know who this woman was? No. Um, if I had to guess, though, my my feeling was that it was probably a teacher. Yeah. Because she knew they were absent from school, she knew what they looked like, and she probably knew that they were disruptive in some way or that they had troubled lives. So my feeling is who else would know? Officers visited the children's homes where they discovered blood on the shoes belonging to Robert and blue paint on a jacket belonging to John, which matched the paint found at the scene of the crime. Hmm. The boys were taken into custody and questioned, during which each blamed the other. However, multiple interviews over several days were conducted and John Venables confessed eventually, saying, what about his mum? Will you tell her I'm sorry? Strange he would feel remorse in that way. Robert Thompson is said to have asked police whether James had been taken to hospital to, quote, get him alive again. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, it's horrific and it sort of shows they definitely are detached from what they've done in a way. It's like they have no sense of, like, the reality of the situation. Yeah. Physical evidence gathered included testing to officially match the blue paint from the scene to the paint on the boys' clothing, blood on both of the boys' shoes matching James by DNA, and bruising patterns matching the boys' shoes. On the 20th of February 1993, John Venables and Robert Thompson were charged with murder, although their identities remain secret due to UK law around trials involving child offenders. They were known in the media at this time as Child A and Child B. Many of the public disagreed with this choice, believing that the severity of the crime merited the 10-year-olds to be tried as adults and publicly identified. Others believed they could not be held fully responsible as an adult could. I would agree with that. Yeah, well, well, we'll come, we'll come back and mm. maybe discuss it a little bit more, what we think about it. Some people even called for the death penalty, which I definitely think is is way out there as far as I'm concerned mm. considering well, especially since we had we don't have the death penalty at this time no nope. do we nope right <laughs> but every time a very this is the thing about the UK is like sometimes our laws are quite at odds with the most vocal people when a really really severe crime happens in this country you really would think that we would have the death penalty because the most vocal people are the ones going, bring back hanging and, you know, all this type Mm. of thing. Just because they're the loudest, you'd think culturally that most of us are for the death penalty. But the reality is that most of us are not in favour of it. Yeah. Yeah, so there were protests outside the courthouse um, arguing that the boys should be hung and all these kinds of things. The parents of both John and Robert needed to be moved to different Mm. areas of the country and given new identities after receiving death threats. Their mothers were slated in the press with Anne Thompson characterised as an overweight drunk and an inept mother and Susan Venables in slightly higher regard but seen as cold and aloof. Mm. John Venables and Robert Thompson were tried in an adult court with many aspects resembling that of an adult trial. 
um, such mm. as being separated from their parents in the docks um, and the judge and court officials wearing their full legal costume. So like in the UK, it's customary if you're trying a... Um, I mean, I'm sure most people have seen what <laughs> what the UK court costumes are like. Yeah. They're quite ridiculous. But those are actually only used in adult tri adult trials. They're never used in children's trials because of the sort of... It's like, well, a lot, you know, it's incredibly oppressive for well, yeah. a young person. So they had all these elements that were like an adult trial, even though they were technically experiencing a child's trial, which um, was quite odd. It was sort of unheard of, the combination of the two. Being tried in an adult court meant that they had to have like special seats so they could actually see over mm. the dock because they were so small. The European Court of Human Rights would later determine that all of these... Um, these things breached the children's right to a fair trial. Although, of course, this mm. decision was unwelcome to many people who just didn't agree that they deserved that. Throughout the trial in which the defendants denied the charges, Robert maintained a cold and calm demeanour which appeared to the jury as a lack of remorse. Conversely, John was described as frequently hysterical. Many Psychiatrists and detectives interviewed the boys to try and understand their motivation and the dynamic between the pair, but no conclusion has ever been established. Between Robert's coldness and John's lack of self-control, it was thought equally likely that either could have been the dominant instigator. Yeah. Whether there was a sexual component to the crime was also never established. It was, however, determined that the boys were aware of right and wrong and were not, in that sense, sociopathic. Right. The prosecution refuted the legal principle of Dolly Incapax at trial, which is the presumption that young children cannot be held responsible for their actions. Um, it was thought that the pair understood the serious nature of their crime. The judge commented that theirs was a crime of, quote, unparalleled evil and barbarity. Your conduct was both cunning and very wicked. They were found guilty of the murder on the 24th of November 1993, becoming the youngest convicted murderers of the 20th century. Their sentence was at Her Majesty's Pleasure, which is a British oh. protocol for... <laughs> so bizarre. Never mind. Mm. <laughs> it's a protocol for juveniles convicted of murder or manslaughter in which the offender is detained indefinitely with no maximum, um, but mm. a case-by-case -case minimum time period. So... It's interesting it, that we well, have that. It's it's basically because we have no idea what to do with people like that because <laughs> it's such a bizarre thing. Yeah. That there's no sort of established way um, and it really depends on the child. In this scenario, this was determined for John and Robert to be eight years minimum. So by which time they would be okay. 18. Right. Um, at that point, they would then be assessed as to their danger to society and released if no threat was detected. At the close of trial, the judge lifted restrictions on reporting around the case and lifted the anonymity that the boys had previously been protected by, releasing their names to the public. This decision was later criticised for the difficulties it presented the probation service and the rehabilitation efforts. Mm. But this, again, had mixed public opinion. Petitions did the rounds to increase the boys' minimum sentences and officials and judges argued from high courts to European courts on the lawfulness of increasing or decreasing the sentence. And this sparked widespread debate over the concept of institutional vengeance. So, like, mm. you know, what are we actually trying to do when we put people in an institution? Yeah. Are we trying to make them better or are we trying to get revenge? And is getting revenge yeah. helpful? 
or is it not? And all these kinds of debates came up from this case. Various rulings and laws were re-examined in the wake of this case. Many people were less than sympathetic. Uh, the Prime Minister at the time was Conservative John Major. He stated, society needs to condemn a little more and understand a little less. Jesus. <laughs> this comment was variously supported and criticised for obvious obvious reasons. Hmm. Yeah, I, I never think that we need to understand less. <laughs> I, <laughs> that seems very radical. Some tabloid newspapers blamed the films that John and Robert were allowed to view at home, including the Chucky film Child's Play 3. It was not confirmed whether John had actually seen this particular film, but his father had rented it in the months prior to the murder, and it was in the home. And the reason right. why this film came into a lot of media discussion was because blue paint is splashed on Chucky at a part oh. of the movie during like a paintballing kind of scene. So some people compared okay. that with the crime scene saying there was the blue paint splashed. But, you know, that could just be a coincidence. So there was a lot of debate at this time about the role that films like and age inappropriate content may have played in this case and may have played in sort of other cases of things like that well there's not really many that are like this but i mean um in children's behavior well, it's interesting that so many sort of debates were sparked yeah definitely this case a detective stated that no one film that they discovered in either child's home had been conclusively identified as inspiration for the killing so they couldn't mm. they didn't really think that any specific thing was oh that's definitely it you know yeah. They just... I mean... They thought it was possible that, given that they were already disturbed children, that maybe yeah. if they saw a film that was even more disturbing, that it might have disturbed them more. But it's not thought that there's one specific thing where it's like, he watched Chucky, so therefore he killed a child. You know? Yeah. Like, he didn't recreate the scene exactly, hmm. as in the film. And I also think they have got a lot going on, psychologically speaking. Like, it makes sense to me that there's not just one clear explanation. There's definitely not one. Yeah, exactly. There's definitely not one clear explanation for any of this. John and Robert were detained at different institutions during their sentence and visited regularly by their parents. They were able to receive an education as well as attempt at rehabilitation and psychiatric help. Both boys were diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder relating to the murder. They experienced nightmares and flashbacks, particularly John. The parole mm. board ruled the boys could be released after their minimum term expired in 2001. They would be monitored for the rest of their lives, moved to secret locations and receive new identities. The terms of their release included not being able to contact each other, not visiting the Merseyside region uh, in which Liverpool is located, and following curfews. They would be returned to an adult prison if in breach. After their release, there were multiple incidents of various people claiming to know John Venables or Robert Thompson's new names, their locations, mm -hmm. spreading images of various individuals wrongly identified as the oh. pair, leading to a myriad of court proceedings. Public interest in the case and the resultant issues continues. A man was jailed for stalking James Bolger's mother, Denise, as recently as 2016. A worldwide injunction remains preventing the publication of any details regarding the identities or locations of John and Robert. Interestingly, while it was Robert who was considered the more psychopathic and less remorseful of the two children, and John who was considered the lower risk, 
It was actually Robert who would not make trouble for himself again, and John who would wind up in the headlines years later. It was 2010 when John Venables was returned to prison for violating the terms of his release. He was convicted and imprisoned for being in possession of images of child sexual abuse being inflicted on male toddlers, a fact that was Mm. both outraging and highly disturbing to the public, considering his crime. Yeah. He was... This sounds awful, but which... Which one is he? He's the one who grew up with all the siblings. No, he's the one with the more normal right. um, upbringing so he... compared to Robert. And the one that a lot of people thought was... So he's a sort of out-of-control one. Yeah. Um, emotional A bit uh, hyperactive and emotional. Robert is the one who was considered to right. be cold and possibly the ringleader. Mm. But um, again, yeah. nobody could ever really say which one was. But so he wasn't, he wasn't sexually abused as Robert was. As a child, um, it's not. It's simply not known because yeah. you know when there's when there's an absence of a report of an of abuse yeah. doesn't necessarily mean there was no abuse. So, I guess we'll never know if he had sexual abuse in his history at all. What can you say? We never really know. Yeah. It's some sort of a mystery. After his imprisonment, it was revealed that John was alleged to have had sex with a woman who worked at his institution when he was aged 17, just before his original release in 2001. Mm. The female staff member was suspended for misconduct. The council was forced to deny that they had covered up the incident. It was publicised that John had had a series of young girlfriends after his release. Um, this was presumed to be a result of his institutionalization as he was experiencing delayed adolescence okay which is a sort of phenomenon where you're mentally haven't experienced being a teenager therefore you haven't grown out of being a teenager therefore you do things like date and hang around with people who are your mental age rather than your physical age he he's grown up in isolation from the majority of society so i can understand that he would have a slightly weird relationship with other people you know, you ask the question, can these boys ever be, mm. can, it, can it ever be normal for them? No. Like, yeah. you know, he gets all this um, sort of rehabilitation and all this psychiatric help and he's still sort of paedophilic. And yeah. it's, I mean, I say sort of paedophilic. If you have child porn, you are a paedophile. So, yeah, <laughs> I mean, there's also not really like degrees of paedophilia. No, there's not degrees. You either are or you aren't, but. Apparently, supervision during John's probation was lax enough up until his 2010 imprisonment for him to begin drinking and drug-taking excessively, obtain child pornography, and even visit Merseyside, the area from which he had been banned. I mean, that seems like a pretty big one. Like It's a big one. I don't know how they lost him and he ended up in Liverpool, the one place where they're like, don't let him go there, and he's just like... I'm going to go there. (laughs) Yeah, I'm just... I'm going to (laughs) go. It's just mad. On two occasions, he also revealed his identity to a friend. All of these incidents resulted in heavy criticism and investigation of the probation service's handling of John. I mean, I just don't understand how, with a a criminal of this caliber, you would be so casual. Mm. Like, I, because I get all of the things where it's like, I want to make sure that they had the right yeah the, the right rights if that makes sense and that they did receive a certain amount of care that is what we would expect from us all being humans and yet on the other hand they're they're dangerous people yeah. that need to be kept apart from society as much as 
is possible yeah. and and if they aren't kept from society they need to be monitored extremely carefully because a crime like that is just totally out of the realm of normality i mean they're not capable of living in the society by themselves and having a normal Definitely behavior not. yeah john was paroled again in 2013 despite the protests of james bulger's parents they were proved right in their claims that John Venables was not fit to be released when in 2017 he was again called to prison for possession of child abuse imagery. In 2018, he was sentenced to another three years and four months in prison. The parole board will decide whether he can be released at the end of this sentence, which I suppose will be fairly soon for in 2020 hmm. now. But it seems weird that he's had these repeated incidents and yet they're still giving him very short sentences. I don't think it's possible to give... I think that's just the way that it legally works. I don't think it's possible to keep him for like ever. Yeah. Um, but what I wonder is if someone like this shouldn't be institutionalized, like not yeah. in a prison, but in in a mental health facility, possibly for the rest of their lives, because it's just not it's just not feasible that this person is gonna live a normal life ever. And it's cruel to the parents as well of the of James because every time this comes up, mm. they're gonna have to go to the bloody parole hearings hear about everything again open yeah. those old wounds f fight for him to stay inside isn't it just better for everyone mm. if he's kept in a mental health facility for the at, at her majesty's <laughs> pleasure if you like i just think that yeah. would stop the, the sort of pain for everyone um i mean it wouldn't stop the pain but it would it would um well it sort of ends the cycle and it definitely stops him you know victimizing other people yeah whether that be in a direct way or whether it be in an indirect mm. way through accessing those types of material. Unfortunately, the strain on James's parents, Ralph and Denise, severely impacted their marriage and they divorced in 1995. Ralph suffered with alcoholism and Denise struggled with denial and stopped eating while trying to process her grief during the trial. Both went on to remarry and have other children. They did not stop fighting for justice for their son, appearing at parole hearings and interviews to argue that his killers should be kept behind bars. So not to say they got over it. The no. best way to explain it is that they worked through it. And even though they couldn't stay together, they very much remained committed to the, to the child that yeah. they had together and remembering him. Um, Denise actually located Robert Thompson in 2004. Obviously, she couldn't have done this legally there must no. have. I don't know how I don't know how she did this but she did locate him but felt unable to confront him at first she said that she wanted to basically find him and ask him mm -hmm. what what he'd done why he'd done what he'd done but she f said she felt so angry that she just didn't think it was constructive and I admire that strength to you yeah know where that person is and yet just choose to basically work through it on your own yeah strong lady yeah definitely robert is believed to live a quiet life having assimilated successfully back into society he's still on license of course he's still um being monitored mm. but according to most reports he has never come up again mm. you do worry about things like that though because just because you don't know that someone has reoffended yeah. doesn't mean that they haven't. But it's such a difficult question because you want to believe that we could help someone yeah. to come back from anything. Well, it's also just because his partner in crime has hasn't been successful in rehabilitating himself doesn't mean that he 
won't be able to sort of, yeah. It is so interesting, though, because it's the opposite way around that you'd think it would be. You know, Robert mm. having had the extreme, extremely horrendous home yeah. life, whereas John having had not an ideal upbringing, but less traumatic. And yet he's the one who is having mm. so much trouble. Now, Denise says her son James is still very much a part of her life. Her three younger children know him as their older brother and the family often talk about him. She says James is never far from our minds. I brought up the lads knowing him, even though they've never met him. Denise has written a book called I Let Him Go, an account of her experience of losing her son and her disappointment in the justice system. She has begun to heal with the help of her husband, Stuart, and she has rediscovered her sense of humour and let go of much of her anger. Although she maintains her son's killers were treated too sympathetically, saying, I am a forgiving person, but I will never forgive them. At the end of the day, I'm the only one to speak out for James. If there's anything I can do to fight for him, I will. And I sympathise with that. Yeah. So... It's just one of those things. I sort of, I, I can totally see why she has absolutely no yeah. sympathy for them. Yeah, but it's, of course. you know, when you want to see it from a sort of... Objective. Yeah, objective perspective. So that is the harrowing and sprawling case of the murder of James Boulder, Bulger. Excuse me. My heart really goes out to Denise because I can't imagine losing a child. But yeah. most of all, in a horrible way like that. Yeah. It's difficult to cover. I hope that this account was as sensitive as possible, but I also think this case is interesting on multiple levels, um, from the behaviour of the kids to the legal issues following. It really gripped me from the moment that I heard about it when I, when I was a child myself. Mm -hmm. um, I think it will always be something of a mystery how children could do something like this. Mm. Um, like Even if they had broken homes, they saw violent movies, how many kids experience the same thing and yeah. don't commit crimes like these? No, it's definitely interesting. And it's obviously a case that has captivated the nation and continues mm. to do so. It brings you back to the nature-nurture argument and the thought that mm. there, there must be a melding of these two in order, to, in order to create people who carry out something like this. It can't just be the things they've experienced because lots of people experience these things. I really don't know where to come down on it. I don't mean in, like any offence to Denise or James's family because I totally understand why people have strong reactions to the killers in this case. But when it comes to saying don't try to understand them, I don't... just condemn them. Yeah. I'm not sure I can fully get behind that because as people know from <laughs> as people know from previous <laughs> comments I've made, maybe I'm a bit of like a bleeding heart, mm. but looking at it purely logically not even emotionally, isn't it better to try and like understand why these crimes are committed so we can prevent yeah. future ones? And like, if we start to understand maybe the combination of environmental and biological factors that could cause someone to become a risk factor for violence in mm. their youth, can you get to that person and yeah. stop anyone becoming a victim? and get them into some kind of program mm. early. Like that's the dream, isn't it? And you're yeah. never gonna get you're never gonna get there unless you try and understand the people that commit crimes mm. like these. It's just, just how it is. And aren't you creating a more hardened, more destructive human being the worse that you treat them? Yeah, definitely. In through their trials, through their prison sentences, um, you know, you send people in prison and they come out rough worse. as hell and yeah. ready ready to do worse things than they've ever done before yeah <laughs> and it's like is that's not 
what we're trying to achieve, is it? All the studies show that the harsher a prison system is, the higher the rate of recidivism. Mm. Obviously, no matter how scary you make the prison, apparently that makes no difference mm. to how people reoffend or not. So there's obviously another well, angle that we need to be looking at. I also don't think that fear in any form is um, a useful... Motivator. Like, yeah, it doesn't have any positive effect on a human in their development. You're absolutely right. It's like you can't make someone afraid enough to be a good person. I, do, I don't believe that. It just doesn't work no. like that. That's just what the studies show anyway. And even when you come to like capital punishment, you know, there's a reason why so many countries have got rid of it because it doesn't work. Mm. It doesn't reduce the rate of crime. In fact, some of the states with the most highest murder rates in America are the states with capital punishment. And I believe that there's something in there about the idea that if the state has the power to kill, mm. then there must be a right reason to kill. And I yeah. think if you if you espouse as, as like a government, if you espouse the idea that, at so, that there's any time where killing is acceptable, mm. then... Yeah, it makes it legitimate. Yes, it legitimizes it. That's exactly what I'm trying to say. Anyway, um, I mean, can you just take a child, like in this case, can you just take a child into prison and like lock it up forever? You know, without yeah. even trying to get inside their mind and see if, even if you can't help them, you can see how you can glean anything from them that might help in future. Mm. The thing is, like, even though this is a hideous, awful crime, and I definitely feel for the family who had to go through this and who have lost a child and that is just awful these are children and the reaction of the public in making them these monsters who don't deserve the effort to understand or even empathize to some degree with them is just a i just it seems too extreme a reaction to me as odd as it is to state, the case's tragedy is compounded because the killers in this case were abused children. Mm. You know, I mean, we don't know so much about John, but Robert was an, a victim. Yeah. <laughs> That's, it's like hard to even say because, you know, it's, it almost sounds offensive to James's memory, but actually his, his killers were victims of other people. And the things that they'd seen and the things that had been done to them had disturbed them. Mm. And that is imp important to remember. Horrendously, they made the choice to victimize someone someone else. Yeah. And that's not acceptable. It's not okay. No. But I wonder if they could have been helped in some way before mm. it was too late and that the, there needs to be lessons learned, not blank condemnations with no, no yeah. learning and no... No t attempt to understand, which I, I think is a total error. Yeah. I think they sort of handled it the best way they could because it's a difficult case and it's very uncommon. But I completely disagree with the statement that we should understand less at any time. Oh, yeah. In, in, all, in basically every walk of life, yeah. understanding less doesn't make any sense to me. Well, that's all we've got for today. Yes, that was a long rambling um, <laughs> conversation. Yeah. No, but it is interesting to talk about these things because, you know, that like I do see, I see, I really feel both viewpoints mm. um, and I understand them. But at the end of the day, you know, I've made clear what I think about it. Mm. But in other senses, I'm not sure what I think about it. You know, it's like, I think that if you want to be 
have true insight, you sort of have to have be able to hold both opinions in a, in a sense, and they can change over time. And yeah. now, now I'm now I'm really just just <laughs> totally just talking smack. So, <laughs> but thank you for listening to our first episode of the yeah. season. Um, don't forget to connect with us on social media at about murder on Twitter, Instagram at a podcast about murder, facebook.com slash a podcast about murder with no E. Um, these are in the description box. Um, and if you would like to send us an email, our address is a podcast about murder at outlook.com. I hope you'll join us again next Friday where yeah. we will do it all over again with another case. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss anything. Um, rate five stars and have a great weekend. Yeah. Try to move on from this horrifically violent case as best you can, <laughs> as I will be attempting yeah, to do. Sorry. Yeah, it was a nice breezy one for the start. So yeah. Start really ease us yeah. into the news.